Good morning again. Okay. <laughs> I know. I can't expect a lot of chatter after that. Yeah, when you get really immersed in that worship, it's amazing. So can you believe July's almost over? Boo. Yeah, I know. I don't want to be depressing. Vince, calm down. Be nice. Well, uh, the neat thing is at the end of July, we're looking into August where the college students come back and the uh, public schools are open for those that get to send their kids to, to back to public school. And um, But I hope you're having a good summer. I hope you've had some fun like I have, and I hope... Uh, I hope you can stuff some more in the next few weeks. We still got some time to cram in some fun. It's <clears throat> just like summer coming to a close. Um, our series on Nehemiah that we've been going through is going to be coming to a close soon also. I hope you guys have been enjoying this like I have. <clears throat> so a brief summary uh, to make sure we're all up to speed on on where we've been is... In the book of Nehemiah, Jerusalem had been uh, in uh, ruin. The walls of Jerusalem had been in ruin for over 150 years. And that was following Israel getting a terrible defeat in a military battle. So all of the rest of the people were taken into captivity as slaves to a foreign government. And then Nehemiah where the book begins is he served as a servant to the king. And because of his really, his great serving and his good relationship to the king, he was able to make this request God laid on his heart to rebuild these walls. And the king said yes, he granted it to him. So then over the next 52 days is all it took, Nehemiah was able to... Uh, gather all the people together, look over their shoulder for their enemies that were planning on attacking them during this and able to accomplish this great feat of building this wall. So at the last chapters, we were like, wow, wall's done. So you would think that'd be the end of the story, but God has more to say. So today we're going to look at chapter eight. So let me pray again. Before we start, Lord, I pray for your peace right now. I pray for your peace on me. I want to have fire and peace. (laughs) Because I got the fire, but I need to settle into your peace. God, I, I only want to speak your words, and I want them to be clear and concise and just... um. I pray that your words has an, have an impact on all of us today. In Jesus' name, amen. We'll start in uh, Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 1. So, verse 1, all the people came together as one. I love that. All the people came together as one in the square before the water gate. They told Ezra, the teacher of the law, to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. So let's pause for a second. This is significant. This is so significant. The Israelites know. I mean, they're exiles because their parents' parents or, you know, their ancestors messed up the relationship with God. There was a covenant relationship. God said, if you do this, I'll do this. And if you do that, guess what? You get the consequences. 
and they know this. They're aware, but they're not fully aware. So they want to know, what is it? What is my side of this? So they know that God just gave them grace to get that wall built. That was, that's mind-blowing to be captives. And the king's like, sure, just build a wall and make this city again. Make, make you a nation again. But they said, please read us the law that God had given so we know how to keep our side of the covenant. So let's continue in verse 2. So on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women and all who were able to understand. So that's cool. Whatever kid could get it, all that could understand. He read it aloud from daybreak till noon. Wow, that's like six hours. Can you imagine a six-hour sermon? I think I'm going to try it today. No, okay, I'm sorry. I see the panic immediately. As soon as you say that, ah, she says no. Okay. Don't do that, Vince. Just kidding. Okay, he read it aloud from daybreak till noon as he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of the men, women, and others who could understand. And all the people listened attentively to the book of law. Can you just feel that? There's like an electric excitement and this focus. They're like, I want to know. So Ezra, the teacher of the law, stood on a high wooden platform built for the occasion. Beside him on his right stood important people whose names are hard to pronounce. So I'm going to five. Okay, verse five. Ezra opened the book. All the people could see him because he was standing above them. And as he opened it, the people all stood up. Again, just the the connection, the attentiveness. The intentionality. God has that towards us, and it's neat when we respond back. They stood up. Ezra praised the Lord, the great God, and all the people lifted their hands and responded, Amen, Amen. Then they bowed down and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. The Levites, also known as, uh, oh, 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 gosh, I don't, excuse me, I don't know how to speak. Also known as other people important, other important people that I can't pronounce, instructed the people in the law while the people were standing there. They read from the book of the law of God, making it clear and giving the meaning so that the people understood what was being read. Again, do you feel the weight of this occasion? Can you see the intentionality on every single element of the scene? They built a platform just for this occasion. Every aspect of this ceremony was designed to emphasize the significance of the law and the covenant that it represented. But then something puzzling happens. So let's continue reading in verse 9. Then Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest and teacher of the law, and the Levites who were instructing the people said to them all, This day is holy to the Lord. Your God, do not mourn or weep. For all the people had been weeping, they had just been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. They were weeping because they finally understood 
the extent in which their lives were not in line with God's holy law. Verse 10, Nehemiah said, go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks. And send some to those who have nothing prepared. So just as an aside, I think it's cool. Nehemiah is always an includer and he cares about the poor and wants them taken care of, wants them to be able to have what they need to celebrate also. He's like, make sure everyone has what they need to participate in this celebration. I love that. I love that. This day is holy to our Lord. Do not grieve for the joy of the Lord is your strength. The Levites calmed all the people saying, be still for this is a holy day. Do not grieve. So that's what they did. Verse 12 says, then all the people went away to eat and drink, to send portions of food to the needy and to celebrate with great joy because they now understood the words that had been made known to them. So did you see what happened here? Why I said puzzling? God said, this is a holy day. Don't grieve about your sins anymore, but instead throw a big party. Am I the only one shocked? I, I'm waiting for... <gasps> when I heard that instruction, I'm like, why, is the, why in the world is that the instruction here? Shouldn't the instructions be the opposite? If we understand, you know, our perception of God, if they aren't aware enough of how bad they are, how bad they were, and wallowing that for a while, how will their repentance work? Is partying how you think of behaving on a holy day? That's a question to ponder for a second. Is partying? Hey, party. It's holy. Is that the first thing that pops into your head? I think if we're honest and we hear that, uh, when we think of holy, we think of more by the rules. I better have this all lined up perfectly, ducks in a row. And maybe even demonstrate a little extra penance. Like, I want to confess on my knees a little bit longer until these hurt. I mean, if they don't really hurt, I don't think I've confessed enough. I mean, they really have to hurt. I want to be in pain. Have you ever felt like that? Have you ever missed the mark so bad dealing with God or dealing with another person? You hurt them so bad or you missed the mark so bad that you felt like my repentance should equal that amount of pain. I have. Now, the truth is that grieving, the grieving, the crying, is a response to our sin that is a necessary part of the spiritual process when we have done wrong. But in the story, we see that they've already done that. They've already done that. They immediately responded. Their posture of their heart was just, what do I have to do? I have turned. Repentance is turning the right way. They're already there. And God knows that. But again, but Vince, their sin, the sin of Israel had been for so long, shouldn't the repentance be equally long? 
Well, tucked in our reading here is a verse that's really going to help answer that question. It contains a phrase we probably all have heard if we've been in church much. But rarely is this verse discussed in terms of its true context in Scripture. So let's see what I, uh, let me show you what I mean. So Nehemiah 10 again. It says, Nehemiah said, go and enjoy choice food, sweet drinks, and send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is holy to our Lord. Do not grieve for the joy of the Lord is your strength. The joy of the Lord is your strength. I was thinking we probably all have seen that on a bumper sticker or a refrigerator, right? And that's cool. There it is. That's the phrase we all know if we've been around church. But if your experience was like mine, um, the way you interpreted that was like that is an encouragement statement to draw strength from God when something happened to me or to you. Not as it's used in this context, when you have done something. So the nation of Israel, and at this time in history, in the Old Testament, nations rather than individuals had the covenant relationship with God. So Israel, anyway, it's not like that anymore, but that's a different sermon. So, But the nation of Israel had failed to understand and obey God's law, and that led to their captivity, of course, And they were understanding, many of them for the very first time in their lives, they were really understanding how far they had missed the mark. And it broke their hearts, and they were beside themselves. Yet, Nehemiah reminds them, do not grieve, because the joy of the Lord is your strength. So what in the world is the joy of the Lord then? The joy of the Lord is that the ones he loves are with him. The joy of the Lord is that the ones he loves, like you, as Bob said last week eloquently, that's everybody. Everyone is the one he loves. The one he loves, the ones he loves are with him. I would suggest that maybe we don't have a uh, perfect understanding of God's heart in the process of repentance. Nehemiah 8 gives us a clue about what God's heart really is. But there's a story that Jesus tells in Luke 15, I think, that helps um, really bring clarity of this concept into focus for us. So let's go to Luke chapter 15. So at the beginning of Luke 15, religious leaders were grumbling about the fact that Jesus was hanging out with the wrong sort of people, people who had blown it people who had missed the mark sound familiar so in response jesus tells three stories about people who had lost something that was very important to them and the way they felt when that lost item was found and the third and final story we're going to go ahead and read that one starting in verse 11 luke 15 11 jesus continued there was a man who had two sons The younger one said to the father, Father, give me my share of the estate. 
So, was, so he divided his property between them. The father did. Well, do you believe what I just said? What he said? I don't want to wait till you die. I want my money now. I think that had been my last words when I was old enough to go off on my own. That would have been, I don't know, I should be fair, let dad tell me if that's true or not. But um, that's, that's pretty wild. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country, and he began to be in need. Sounds like he missed a mark. <laughs> but he is going to fix it. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him in the fields to feed his pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. Again, remember in Nehemiah that posture of repentance, just the posture. So 20, he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father said to him, his, his father saw him, I mean, and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said, he had his speech planned, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again, and he was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. So pause here for a second. The son asked for a servant's position, and the father, he didn't even acknowledge that request. He didn't say, no, no. He didn't even, he acted like he, I mean, he immediately just, he received him, put a robe on him. He honored him with all the privileges and honors due to a beloved son. And he said, we're going to party. Sound familiar? But the prodigal son was not the only son. So let's go. Verse 25 says, Meanwhile, the older son was in the field when he came near the house. He heard the music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked, What's going on? Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you. Interesting, slaving for you. Slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him? These two sons are the perfect picture of the ways we misunderstand God's heart towards the repentant person. 
either we're the one who messed up and we don't think we're worthy to be part of the family anymore. We don't think we could do enough, you know, of we're just not worthy. Or we're the one who follows all the rules, so we think that's what makes us good enough. But neither of these postures demonstrates a true understanding of the simplicity of the heart of God towards his children. So that's found in verse 31. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. The joy of the Lord is that the ones he loves are with him. And again, as Bob said last week, the ones he loves is everyone. The older brother had never left, okay? And his father was full of joy that he was there. The younger son took off, made a mess of his life, but came crawling back, and the father was overjoyed that he was there. In the book of Nehemiah, the Israelites presented themselves to God. I mean, that's, that's where we started the chapter. They consecrated themselves. They were setting themselves firmly in his protection, his presence. And God was full of joy that they were with him. His cho- chosen people had chosen him anew. The joy of the Lord that his children were with him. That is where you and I can draw strength from. When we struggle with missing the mark or feeling unworthy. No matter what, God loves us. He will accept us into his family and into his presence. Because we are his joy. You are his joy. Each one of you. You are his joy. The one thing he wants above all else is that you would be with him and share his joy. At the end of Nehemiah 8, it says that since the days of Joshua, no one had celebrated like this, and their joy was very great. So they got it. They accepted the invitation. So how about us? How about you? No matter where you are spiritually, physically, emotionally, God invites you right now to be with him and partake in his joy that you are with him. Please, uh, let's... Let's have a prayer moment for a second. Let's just, everyone, bow their head, close their eyes, please, just to help with distractions and just to picture this. In Luke 15, 22, when the son had 
came back. Here's what his father said. Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Can you picture yourself in the presence of God right now? Whatever your heart posture was before this moment, can you picture yourself being in front of him saying, either I failed or you're the older brother that didn't get it, that I followed all the rules and and you're not experiencing his joy. But he's like, bring the best robe and he puts a robe on you and his ring on your finger that represents you are his son. New sandals on his feet. And he's like, I'm going to throw you a party. What does that do to your heart? 